0: All right, as we get started, good to see everybody, by the way. What is with the snowstorms every weekend? I don't know, but you're here. Um, last two weeks, we've been in a series in the book of Haggai. And it's, um, it's a tricky biz, these little prophetic books, uh, because they're not really kind of something you and I are used to. And before we get into this, I wanted to just take a moment. Every once in a while, I want to remind you of why we do teaching. We don't do this teaching bit every Sunday because, because um, I have some sort of a like ego that I need to like work out with you. Um, this teaching thing is has been the way the church, all the way back to the early church, has kind of worked out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it happens in different ways and with different styles and things like that. But what I wanna share with you today is the reason why we do this, the reason why we kind of talk about things and study scripture and work out the implications of it is not because um, you need to know how much I know because I don't know that much. Um, I'm not an expert on any of these things. I don't have any special powers. It's just, we're taking scripture seriously because Jesus took it seriously. And if we want to kind of embody the life that Jesus has for us, I think it's really important for us to wrestle with the same things that the people of God have wrestled with throughout centuries and millennia. And this is one of those. Now, some of you are like, you're scaring us. What are we going to talk about? Um, I actually think this is, on the surface, a very difficult passage to to wrestle with. And I've wrestled with it for a number of weeks. And, um, and then it hit me. This is actually a really beautiful passage about God's grace. But we'll get into that here. Um, the last two weeks, we, like I said, we've been in this Haggai thing. And the first week, um, and, and without going through all the history again, this is only 38 verses long. Uh, it's two chapters in scripture. It's a very small book, but it was about 2,600 years ago. We're, we're reading something that was kind of like a three or four month piece of history in the, in the life of the nation of Israel, 2,600 years ago. They had returned from exile. They were supposed to build the temple, rebuild the temple they started rework, uh, rebuilding the temple, but then they got scared because they got threatened by the Samaritans who were kind of the bully in the neighborhood. And they stopped building the temple. And instead, for the next 15, 16 years, they actually spent time just building their own homes. And for 15 or 16 years, the temple's in ruins, but their houses are looking just dope right? They were were getting wood paneling from um, up in Lebanon, and they were spending their time and their money just tricking out their homes. And in the meantime, in the middle of the city, the centerpiece of their worship to who God is, is just in ruins. So the prophet Haggai shows up and says, hey, what's the deal? What is going, God's like, what is going on? And then the second week, uh, of our teaching was actually uh, a month later was the second message from Haggai. So they had uh, kind of felt the, the, the challenge from God. They, they kind of repented. They decided to lay down the work they were doing on their homes and to come together the whole community and work on the temple. And they start work on the temple, but they quickly get really discouraged. And the reason why they got discouraged is some of the people were older and they remembered what the temple actually looked like back in the day before it was obliterated by the Babylonians. And they're looking at this piece of ground and where the temple was and what the beginning of the work was happening. It was like a small little version of the temple in the midst of the rubble of the former temple. And the older folks were weeping they were sad. They were really bummed out. They're like, there's, this isn't going to be anything like what it was. But the younger crew had, who were born and raised in Babylon, who came back and they got all excited. They got all jazzed up by, you know, what was happening in the community. They're like, let's build it, you know. And so they're super excited and they're screaming, they're hollering. And so there was this, there was this massive amount of discouragement that began to spread throughout the community like a cancer and last week we talked about discouragement and we got really honest about discouragement and for the like 25 of us that were here (laughs) we got to talk honestly about discouragement and and we had a moment where we got to think about it and pray for each other and 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 if you're dealing with discouragement i would encourage you to go back and listen to that and reach out to somebody because a community that gets discouraged is a really difficult place to be. It's one thing to be an individual, but and people can kind of come around you and pick you up. But today we talk about another problem. And it's actually, um, I think, a reminder. It's Haggai reminding the people of what their state was before they started building the temple. That at the core of their misliving, they were actually mistrusting. Their trust was in something other than God. And and I think what comes out of this passage is they had an error in how small they saw God and how big they saw themselves. So they had a deflated view of God and they had an inflated view of themselves. And they had this idea that since they were doing something special rebuilding the temple, and, and even you could call it holy, that since they were doing something religious, that God was going to do something special for them, which is a natural human thing. And so the date is December 18th, 522. We know that because of what Scripture says here. Now, you guys are like, wait a second, it says the ninth month. It's just a different calendar. They were off the Babylonian calendar at this point. So it says on the day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, Babylonian leader, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. So there's a role of the priests and the people of Israel. Um, Their role was to bring the people before God and to to do uh, uh, the work of, of bringing the people to God in a way that was worshipful and beautiful. And so Haggai uh, is, is kind of setting up in a little bit of a courtroom situation here. The people of Israel are the defendants and the priests are being called as the first witness, okay? And the people are in a sense on trial, and the two issues they have are, um, what we're about to get into is how holy God is and how not holy the people are. And it says this in verse 12, ask the priests. So that this is what the priests are being asked by God through Haggai. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew Some wine, some olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answer, no. So, this is all Levitical law stuff. This is the priest would take the consecrated sacrifice, the meat for the sacrifice, that was deemed holy because it had been set apart, and all these um, provisions had been put in place to keep that special to keep that sacrifice special. And the priest, who was also consecrated, would carry that. And they would put a fold, they'd take their garment and fold it around the meat to keep it from getting defiled by anything else. Okay? So the, the question is, if that fold of that priest garment touches something, like your Super Bowl dip today, or whatever food, does that dip then become holy? Right? And that's the question. Everybody knows the answer. No. No, the the sacrifice doesn't like, it's not like some special Midas touch thing where the the, the, the sacrifice gives everything else like Gold, you know, turns everything else into gold. No, it's not how it works. That's not how the system works. The idea is that sin in our lives uh, corrupts things. But that there's a perfect sacrifice that uh, covers everything. Can someone really quick turn that hot water thing off? It is making my brain go nuts. Thanks. Or maybe unplug it. It's just a thing. I don't know. Anybody have things like that? Okay, I can't wait for we move down. Anyhow. um. (laughs) (laughs) So the holy sacrifice does not, just by touching other things, make it holy. It's like the whole rule of thumb with clean and dirty things. This is like basic humanity right here, right? Dirty always makes clean dirty. Clean doesn't make dirty clean. Dirty makes clean dirty. You can work this out with your kids later, right? (laughs) The best doctor's office. Here's how you know you have a great doctor's office, pediatrician doctor's office. There's a what room and another room, right? There's a well room and a sick room. Okay? You don't just throw them all in the same room unless they're into like repeat business right (laughs) like there's the reality is no one is ever expecting to catch health you know it's just like man there's some healthy people over there i'm going to go over there and just kind of breathe it in right it's actually the it, it doesn't work that way then haggai says if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things does it become defiled What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, the Levitical law was like, listen. um, And they dealt with dead bodies more than you and I do. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Some of you are in that biz, and that's okay. But Leviticus 22 talks about being ceremonially unclean when you touch a dead body. And there's a whole process that goes into this. And there's something called a mikvah, which is a ceremonial bath. Um, and it's, it's, it, this is all about approaching God on God's terms. So they ask the question, so what happens? Does it become defiled if you touch a dead body? And the priests say, yes, it becomes defiled. It's like a red sock in a load of whites, right? It's just gonna change things. Now, why does he bring this up? Then Haggai said, so it is with the people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. So what they're offering is, in a sense, uh, their their actions might be like, hey, we're doing this thing, but in their hearts, they're, they're not trusting. There's something in the exchange here that's missing. And, and we've seen glimmers of repentance with the people. Obviously, that first week, they were like, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be building our houses. We should be building your house and all that kind of stuff that happened. And we talked about the idea of confession being in agreement with reality. That you take the time to go, this is, this is what's true of my life right now. This is what I'm aiming towards. This is what I'm spending my time in. This is what... I'm, I'm doing, and in it's agreement with reality, and, and, and in confessional terms, it's agreement with reality in light of God's reality. So the people still have this problem, and they're they're operating in a sense with unclean hands. So they're they're in a sense they're back to work, right? They're building the temple, and. Some of their thinking is because they're doing something religious, because they're doing something that God wants them to do, it makes them holy. They think that because they're touching the work of the temple, that it's it's transmitting something back to them. And God is saying, no, that is not possible. That's not how this works. And now this is huge for us. Because for many of us, we struggle with the idea of, of well, there's two kind of twin cousins, so like close cousins. One cousin is this idea of legalism. And legalism is not doing things in order to make God like me make God favorable towards me. It's part of the definition, not the whole thing. And then there's this other idea of prosperity, where some people could read this passage and go, oh, if we do, if we, if we orient our lives around uh, of this way of thinking, that God will actually kick back a whole bunch of blessing towards us. And we'll get into that here in a little bit when it talks about God blessing them and And, uh, you know, all the crops and things like that. But the idea of many of us is when we look at a phrase like this, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. A lot of us are really quick to jump to the do what Jesus did part. And we think that because we're doing things for Jesus, or we're doing what Jesus said to do, that that's really what he's after. And that is not what God is after. The do part flows out of the be with. The do part comes out of the trust and, the, and the, the response to this overwhelming love of God to us. And so in a sense, they're out of alignment with God at this point. And there's this ideology that they're struggling with. that if I do these things, then God will show up and bless me. If I don't do these, thing, these other things, God will show up and bless me. And I'm entitled in some way or another for this blessing, for the olive crop and the wine crop and the grain crop. And sometimes I think if we're really honest, and maybe you, you've never been like this, but if we're really honest, there's times in our lives when we think to ourselves, man, God, you're really lucky to have me. Maybe you've never thought that. And, and it's like, why? Like, why, why did that come up? Why did that... Because I've, you know, accomplished something, or I've helped somebody, or I've come to church, like, a few more times than I used to, or I serve in church now, whatever it is. And then the flip side's this tricky part, right? Like, What happens when suffering hits us in the face? Like what happened when life hits us so hard? And sometimes within like very Christian things, and we go, well, wait a second. This doesn't really add up. Like here I'm doing all this Christian stuff and this ministry stuff. I'm doing all this do what Jesus did stuff. and I'm experiencing this, and I've got loss in my life, and I've got a diagnosis in my life, and I have pain, and I've been treated horribly by these people in my life. So what happens then? What happens when the formula starts to break down a little bit? uh, Some of you guys know I I work with the police department, and I work for the police department for officers, but occasionally, the public wants a chaplain. So I was called out once to a suicide, and they wanted me to pray for their son who had committed suicide. And the whole investigative team is waiting for the chaplain to respond, but that's what the people wanted. And one day I was on a ride-along with a friend, and he, we got called, and he said, hey, is the chaplain available? And he's like, actually, he's sitting right here with me in the car. And they're like, great, come to this address. We show up at an address. It was uh, February of 22. And uh, uh, an older gentleman is back. (laughs) He's my age. Uh, um, Gosh, this sucks. (laughs) Um, His 25-year-old daughter died in her sleep and they live together, and she's upstairs, and she's in her room, and the coroner's there, and he's downstairs losing it, and the detectives, um, they're not chaplains. They're detectives. That's their job, and they're good at it, and the detective said, I need the chaplain here. He's asking for the chaplain, So I go downstairs and I'm sitting with this man and his whole world is, it's gone. And he begins to go through a series of things that he thinks contributed to the fact that his daughter has died. And they are all connected to the things that he hasn't done religiously. I should have gone to church. I should have read my Bible more. I mean, and you could say, you could sit there and sit with the guy and you could, I mean, obviously, cognitively, that's just, it's just not reasonable. But yet there's something in us as human beings that has a connection to what we do religiously to how God treats us. And as I spent time with him, I won't go through the whole conversation. We had a great conversation, prayed together. He followed up with me over email. The reality is that we all have this; in tr- it's just in us. It's like a, it's like a tacit thing inside of us. That do w- the things we do or the things we didn't do, and God shows up. It's misplaced trust. Because ultimately what that is, is trusting in your ability to do or not do certain things and then God shows up. And that's where we get legalism and we get prosperity. And Haggai, and God through Haggai is getting after this. It's like they're misliving because they're mistrusting. And it's like they're, they're experiencing some level of like ancient Hebrew voodoo or or some magic formula and they're trust and instead of trusting to receive from God that God just wants their heart God just wants their trust God just wants them to to walk forward in this whole thing in trust what grace is grace is and a lot of time we don't hear the word grace in the old testament and it's not that it's not there. It's just there's just different ways that God is communicating grace to his people. Grace is unmerited favor. And what unmerited favor is, you didn't earn that favor. There's nothing you and I can do to make God love us more or less. It, that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's conditioned upon God. God. And that's what we're seeing happen here. And so the same grace that we experience, obviously we we see it more clearly in light of what Jesus has done, but that same grace that initially, in a sense, heals us, as that's the word for salvation, is that same grace that heals us continues to heal us, continues to transform us. And And it's trusting in that, And we have the will to trust in that. God's not after the external obedience. It's like the idea of, we may do a a few teachings on this, but bearing the name of God, bearing the name of Jesus, not, not wearing the name, but bearing the name. There's a huge difference there. And so let's just get back into this passage here as, as we get to the end. It says, now give careful thought to this from this day on. Like this is a classic, ancient way of saying from this moment, from this day on. It's like put a stake in the ground, build like a pillar of stones from this day on. Consider, things were before, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. He's like, think back. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone uh, went to a, vine, a wine vat, which we do, right, uh, to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. Basically, what he's saying is, is, before one stone was put on another, you brought nothing to the table. In the sense of all of your effort that you were putting out was not, you were not returning anything from it. Like you thought this, but you got this. And he says, you kept doing all this religious stuff. And he says this in verse 17, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail. Yet you did not return to me. And this sounds very punitive, but I just want you to know that this is how an agricultural society understood From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree, have not borne fruit. So he's basically saying, you've started the temple, but you have no seed in the barn to replant any of the things that you need. You're at the end of your rope. They bring nothing on their own. I mean, this is a very humbling passage. Like if we're really facing ourselves in the mirror... And going, I, I mean, if I'm being really honest with myself. And it's, what's beauty is you don't get this in the digital text. You don't get this when we put it on the screen. But if you were to go home and open up your Bible, at the end of that passage, there's a space in it. And then there's going to be one more line. I'm not going to put it up yet, but there was a, there's a space there. And that is a non-verbal way that the writers of the scriptures communicate a pause. There's a space. And it's meant for them to feel it. It's meant for them to wrestle with the fact that they bring nothing to the table, that they, they ultimately, their efforts, if it's just efforts, are totally in vain. And then God says this. From this day on, I will bless you. He's just really making it clear to them. You have a very high vision of yourself. Which, in contrast, makes a very low vision of me. And so God is just saying, like, this is the reality. But I am a God of grace. And from this day on, I will bless you. Now, let's talk about Jesus a little bit. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Already. But the most urgent need in many of our lives, okay? is to trust what you've already received. And we have a hard time doing that. We have a hard time living out of that trust. Now, here's the thing about, I think many of us have a hard time to, we have a hard time doing that because we feel like we've got to do things. We feel like we have to keep, it's the classic religious conversation and philosophical some philosophical conversation over and over again I have with people. Religion is ladder erection. It's like putting a ladder against the wall and climbing anywhere you can, okay? And a lot of times with the Christian faith, with with following Jesus, people go, no, you're right, it is, you're right, it is all about grace. And so they take the ladder and then they move it just somewhere different. It might be a smaller ladder where they're still trying to please God and they're still trying to get the benefits of this life through, in a sense, a way of living. I I cracked open the book by Brennan Manning. It's called Ruthless Trust, and I haven't read it in a while, but I was thumbing through it. And a passage that I had highlighted... 17 years ago, maybe? <laughs> well, you get to read it. He says, The splendor of, the, of a human heart that trusts, is, it trusts, it is loved unconditionally, gives God more pleasure than the Westminster Catholic, Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's sunflowers, the sight of ten thousand butterflies in flight, or or the scent of a million orchids in bloom, trust is our gift back to God, and He finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. And that is what's going on in this passage with Haggai. God's like you, you, you've you've mistrusted me, and because you've mistrusted me, you've mislived. So here's, here's a couple thoughts for us as we consider our ways. Cuz that's what's been the refrain in the passage throughout. Is consider your ways, right? Let's consider our ways. Because this is a very human thing to do. Now when you think of the people, right? 15 years They come back from exile. They take 1,700 miles to walk back, 50,000 of them from Babylon. The majority of their people stay in Babylon because let's just be honest, it's Babylon, right? It's probably a pretty pretty great place. Um, And so a lot of people stay. Only 50,000 return. They're called the remnant. They had to say goodbye to family and friends, my guess is, that decided not to come. I bet there were some arguments, I bet there was some real tears, you're never going to see them again. They get back to Jerusalem. They have one job, build the temple. They quickly give up. And they just go into survival mode. And the reality is, if we're not careful, we go into survival mode too. Somewhere along the line, you got discouraged with your faith. Some community hurt you. Some outcome didn't happen. Somebody bullied you with your faith. Some, somewhere along the line, something you believed about God didn't actually, or, or Scripture actually, be, you learned is actually that's not the way to think about it. And, and it started to unravel things in your faith. Some of you have looked back on your life and, and looked at all the, re, the religious stuff, the way you showed up, the way you talked, the things you got involved in, all those things, and you look back at them and you're like, I was trying to be something or do something that just wasn't what God wanted. And, and this is where a, a moment of humility, I think, is really good for us. Is that Psalm, the Psalm, create in me a clean heart, oh God? And renew a right spirit within me. Because God is actually saying, On this day, from this day forward, I will bless you to the people. He was like, I am going to, I'm going to bless you. You've begun to trust, and I'm going to bless you. Now, I don't know how that hits you today. I don't know if maybe some of you are like, man, I'm, I'm really needing a restart here. And what I love about Haggai is it's, there's a message in September, there's a message in October, then there's this message in December. And it's just like, okay, I can relate to a little kind of season, right? And I don't know if you look back on your kind of near season here. But what does it look like? What does your trust in God look like at this moment? Because I think that a lot of times we think that trusting in God is about the dying part and not the living part. Trusting in God is about how we do the living part. Jesus never had his eye out on the next great like rule follower. He wasn't at, at looking for the, oh, who's the next great religious person? Who can I, you know, Jesus was and is all about the humble, the honest, and the repentant. That's why Jesus gravitated towards people who actually, with humility, saw their life. The woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman at the well, the, I mean, on and on, Zacchaeus, Matthew even saw through Peter's weirdness. And I love this quote by Philip Yancey, and if you've never read any Philip Yancey, get to work. He says this, having spent time around sinners and also around purported saints, I have a hunch why Jesus spent so much time with the former group. I think he preferred their company. Because the sinners were honest about themselves and had no pretense. Jesus could deal with them. In contrast, the saints put on airs, judged him, and sought to catch him in a moral trap. In the end, it was the saints, not the sinners, who arrested Jesus. So, if we're being really honest about ourselves, and I think what happens in Haggai is like a giant community honest session. Like where do we trust? Where's all our trust right now? And like some of you are struggling with trust in what God is up to. When you just look at the world stage, you're just like, okay. Maybe there's just m- most of your trust is going into like how you're doing this thing with your kids or your future. Some of you are are, are maybe. Uh, not trusting right now when you're like, okay, um, what is or isn't happening around this church? Maybe it's not to the level you would like, or there's not enough of this or that, and you're just not trusting. Where are you having a hard time trusting God? Where are you having a hard time, um, you know, trusting uh, the people of God? Where have you experienced suffering and loss and disappointment and discouragement? I think there's moments, like like God's doing right here, he's kind of, in a sense, giving them a reset. A beautiful reset. On a specific date, he's giving them a reset. And he's correcting their vision, uh, their view of themselves and their view of him. Now, what we're going to do is let the communion table be a reset. The communion table for... 2,000 years has been a moment. It's been a moment where the people of God have been invited, dare I say commanded, to participate. Jesus takes his disciples on a journey of trust. And he does it at a Passover meal. A Passover meal that's really familiar to them about people of God trusting God right? I mean, that's the whole modus of the Passover, is the people were commanded to trust by putting the the blood of the sacrifice over their doorposts and trusting that God would protect them. It's all about trust. And so Jesus passes the cup and he says, here's the thing, uh, my body's going to be broken and my blood's going to be spilled. Do you trust? This wasn't their vision of how it was supposed to go. And, and fast forward a few weeks in, in the book of Acts and they're just like, okay, when are you going to do that thing? Like, He's like, oh, you're still not getting it. It's an issue of trust. That's what... That's why we're invited to the table over and over and over again. Why? Because we mistrust. And so when we come to the table, what we're saying is we're, we're trusting in the fact that Jesus broke his body for us, that he became that, that perfect sacrifice that can make all things new, that his blood spilled for us is a way through, and we trust it we don't have to understand it all but to trust it and here's what's amazing after Jesus' arrest the disciples scattered <laughs> they totally scattered we don't even hear about a lot of them until like way later yeah. peter's running around just saying nope nope don't know him don't know him don't know him you know what i mean so he has this beautiful table moment, this communion meal, this last supper, and then every, and then there's just like, they're falling asleep in the garden. He's like, pray with me. And they, just, they just can't trust. So here's the thing with us. We're just like that. The invitation to the table is to trust. To take that next small bit of trust and bringing it to the table. Let me pray. God, when we trust you are you are full of joy Your love for us is so big and so intentional and so so intense and so heated and so chasing that when when you just taste trust from us, It fills you with joy. And God, what I think inspires us so many times, especially within the times of darkness that envelop us for the lots of income or the nagging pain in our bodies and the discouragement we feel in our hearts, when we trust your love for us, and we come to the table, we pray, we pray, Jesus, into your hands, I entrust my body, my mind, my spirit, this entire day, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, this night, whatever you want of me, I want of you. Falling into you and trusting in you in the midst of my life. That into your heart, I entrust my heart, able and distracted and secure and uncertain it is. That God made this table be a moment of that trust for us. God, it's unto you that we abandon ourselves in Jesus our Lord. Amen. When you're ready, come. When you're ready, come, and there's gluten-free, and there's uh, juice, and take it when you're ready.